Your film is now ready to be shown. Good evening. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Earlier this month in The Guardian newspaper, researcher and journalist Jane Litmanenko wrote, I report on internet disinformation. When Russia invaded Ukraine, it became very personal. There is more than one struggle. There is the war of bombs, the war that's taking lives. And then there's the battle over what can be done. Jane grew up in Kiev. She moved to Canada at 11, but traveled back to visit her family and friends there nearly every year, sometimes spending entire summers in Ukraine. Now, like every Ukrainian, no matter how far from the land, now under assault in a brutal, illegal Russian invasion, she's part of the effort to defend it. I caught up with Jane to get her take on what's happening in the information space in this war, including the role of the platforms and the news media in confronting disinformation, the role of myth-making and the transmission of cultural information in this moment, and the role of citizen diplomacy. Here's Jane. My name is Jane Litvinenko. I'm a senior research fellow on the Tech and Social Change Project at Harvard Kennedy School's Schoenstein Center. Nice brief title. Um, I'm also a freelance reporter. Uh, and I've been looking at disinformation for uh, more years than I care to count at this point. So in your role there, you are thinking about how to create a curriculum for newsrooms, for academics to, to study disinformation and to report on it. What do you make so far of the news media's handling of this conflict with regard to the question around disinformation? You know, I think that the investment in fact-checking teams and verification teams is largely paying off. Uh, We have seen some Russian disinformation flow through. We have seen some confusion in newsrooms, but I think by and large, Newsrooms have been doing really good work with verifying the sheer amount of information that is coming in. And the reason I say that is because particularly when you look at U.S. newsrooms at a national level, but I don't want to limit it to just U.S. newsrooms. Um, I think we're seeing it with a lot of Western newsrooms. Over the last five years or so, there has been a buildup of teams that are specifically dedicated to disinformation. Some of those teams started after the 2016 election. Some of them started in response to the 2020 election. Some of them were created out of necessity during COVID. And some of them are these uh, big, highly specialized uh, visual investigations teams like we see with Um, I mean, New York Times VI team, of course, is the primary example, but we see the same in Washington Post, Sky News, BBC, etc. And what that means is that there's now a body of well-trained professionals who don't just verify or debunk disinformation, which they do, but also investigate it and understand the best way to present that information to their readers. And as a result, we get these very high quality um, reports, explainers, debunks that pull apart the both of the junk that's going around the web and the disinformation narratives that we see coming out straight from the Kremlin. 
And so I think so far so good. But as we speak right now, we're on day 34 of a war, which for a crisis on this scale is quite early. And so I think we need to be careful to not get comfortable with the success of the early efforts. Um, And I think we also need to understand the inequality in information environments when it comes to Western countries and primarily the English language Um, and the inequality in literally everywhere else where social media companies have not Uh, invested as much into moderation efforts, where newsrooms don't have as much resources to invest into disinformation efforts, and where information environments are quite different, and where Russian disinformation might find riper ground. I do want to talk a little bit about the role of the platforms. Uh, You are tracking takedowns, removals, you know, in your work there, and kind of keeping an eye on them as well. And of course, they're funding a lot of that fact-checking Mm-hmm. apparatus. Um, you know, as Sarah Wiley at the Tau Center has said that, you know, Meta or you know, the owner of Facebook and Instagram is is possibly funding as much as 10% of ecosystem of fact checkers out there. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of their performance so far? Um, I've been describing it as scattershot. Um, and I think that still applies. There's a lack of coherence in approach from these companies. Um, our team here, uh, led by April Glazer and also with my colleague Jazila Salam, have been essentially trying to understand the moderation and the removals that social media companies have um, publicly enacted um, since the beginning of the war. And what you begin to see um, as you scroll through this timeline is essentially just a completely different approach from different platforms. Some of that approach is informed by EU regulations. So one example is the European Union asked social media companies to block over Russian propaganda outlets like RT and Sputnik. Those are the main ones. And social media companies obliged. But they did that initially only in the EU and not worldwide. YouTube then extended that ban worldwide, but if you go on twitter.com, the website, um, you will be able to see RT gleefully posting on its accounts, right? Facebook made these, again, overt propaganda outlets more difficult to fight uh, find on their platform. So if you were to search for RT on Facebook, Um, It would be tricky for you to get it. But if you're already a subscriber, of course, you still have access to it. And to me, you know, RT is sort of an exemplar of Russian propaganda, but we need to be careful to not uh, present it like the only outlet where Russia um, spreads propaganda outside of its borders. But the reason why it's useful to look at RT is because we start to see those inconsistencies in in enforcement um, in the most obvious outlet, right, in the most obvious field. And to me, this is, I think, an incorrect approach um, from social media companies, Um, I guess is probably the most polite way I can put it. And the reason why that approach is incorrect is because what we know from years of looking at disinformation is that it's not platform agnostic, right? 
So something that we saw during COVID, for example, is YouTube videos that went viral in Facebook groups, even though YouTube itself was not promoting those videos. So there are different streams and different mechanisms to the way that information moves um, across social media platforms. And so whatever kind of enforcement action, moderation action, these platforms are announcing, they need to be cognizant of how that information moves from one platform to another, from one language to another. You know, this this is a trilingual uh, war, uh, if we want to be extremely generous, but it is a war that is being discussed globally. And so disinformation needs to be moderated across different languages as well, which we don't particularly see. And it's very egregious because we've seen these problems in worldwide crises, including in 2014 in Ukraine. And so to not see the problems and the gaps coming, to not uh, work to prevent those problems and those gaps consistently and proactively is creating a really dangerous environment, a really dangerous environment. And one more thing I'll say is that we will see disinformation begin to work. Undoubtedly, we will see disinformation begin to work. We're already seeing the beginnings of that now. We're already seeing willing information launderers spread the Kremlin's uh, talking points. But at the same time, after a month, after 34 days, we see positive public attention, or I don't know if positive, but proactive public attention recede a little bit. Right. People begin to take interest in other topics. Um, They're still keeping an eye on Ukraine, but they're not uh, glued to their screen and only reading news about Ukraine 24 seven, like we saw in the first two weeks and like we saw before February 24th. And what that means is as public attention withdraws, public accountability of social media companies frequently withdraws with it. And we've seen this again in endless other global crises, but perhaps COVID is one that's the most obvious to use. Because again, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw huge enforcement, proactive enforcement from social media companies And then as attention began to spread to different news items, as political pressure began to be divided, that enforcement disappeared as well. And so with Ukraine, it is more than likely that we'll see the same pattern. As Ukrainians, we need to be able to preempt that pattern um, and continue pressuring social media companies. But it is exhausting to have to be telling social media companies, this is the pattern that plays out. And so one thing that I'm really, really worried about is for that cycle, for that pattern to repeat itself, and for what we see of the scattershot proactive enforcement around Ukraine disappear as the war continues. One thing that was certainly true of uh, COVID that 
may end up being true of, of this particular conflict. You know, the social media companies appeared to have some regrets about some of the things that they did early on in, in the fight around disinformation with COVID. So, for instance, banning talk of the possibility uh, that COVID had emerged from a, from a lab in Wuhan, which was later reckoned to be perhaps a, a more worthwhile debate than it had originally been seen. Do you think there's there's any action that the platforms have taken to date that they may regret later uh, in this crisis uh, or maybe would be seen to have gone too far? You know, I think that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about it from that angle. But as you were talking, what came to mind is how newsrooms understand news, right? So for newsrooms, the initial story of the Wuhan lab was not a credible story. And the reason why it was not a credible story is not because there was a team of scientists who came to reporters and said, this is a distinct possibility. We need to consider it carefully. Please report it out. The story was suspicious because it was initially laundered by Steve Bannon um, and his associates. And it was not laundered in such a, in a nonpartisan way, of course, as we can expect from these political actors. Instead, it was presented as Bill Gates is funding these laboratories. These laboratories either had an accident or were developing biological weapons. Therefore, COVID came from these laboratories. And so that story was provably false, not just because of the the source, um, but also because of the details. As more details emerged and more reporting emerged, newsrooms altered their understanding of what the Wuhan laboratories have been doing, how forthcoming China is with information, what is or isn't possible to investigate. And of course, uh, all of this with the understanding that figuring out where a virus comes from is an incredibly difficult science. We do not see the same kind of nuance. And I, you know, I don't want to overpraise the news media here. I think there's been a lot of mistakes made from news media side as well. But for social media companies to have this kind of nuance in their own moderation, again, it needs to be proactive. And so um, that is the danger with active, earnest enforcement early on in a war um, or in a crisis, I refuse to call it a conflict, but not following up on those early reports. Because as reporters, as researchers, we understand that new information emerges, situations change, and particularly in a wartime environment, very few things are black and white, which I guess is a very long way of not answering your question. (laughs) Um, But that's why, you know, That's why a lot of these decisions from social media companies can't be black and white either. They need to be dynamic and they need to be proactive. Um, I don't know, um, to go back to your uh, original question, 
whether these companies will regret some of the enforcement actions that they've taken. I think a particularly sticky question is whether the Russian ban on Facebook properties could have been avoided because although many steps that Meta has taken have been steps responding to Ukrainian demands and to global demands, I don't think we can... I don't think anybody thinks that the banning of meta properties in Russia is a good thing. Um, and so I think that will be one of, one of the many questions that social media companies will have to grapple after this war. Sorry, that was so winding and long-winded. No, it's, it's a complicated issue. And, you know, I, sorry to push you so much on, on the parallel, but, mm-hmm. you know, it is an interesting one where you see that early on the platforms are trying to, possibly limit the spread of disinformation, but also doing it in a context where people are perhaps being harmed. And of course, when the Wuhan lab leak theory uh, was first being discussed, it was also in a context of you know, hate and violence being directed against uh, Asian people in the United States, uh, Asian Americans. So you know, there were other perhaps contingencies on the platform's decisions um, with regard to that. And I could see some parallel in this case as well. Mm-hmm. But Let's let's switch gears a little bit to maybe another front in uh, this information war. I'm really interested in how these various kind of civilian core of people have been organized to participate. And we've got so many different types of examples. You've got this kind of massive SMS campaign trying to reach Russian citizens with with real news. You've got this Ukrainian IT army, which is sort of loosely coordinated uh, with the government via a telegram channel that's trying to encourage people to reply to Russians' posts on social media, including on Russian social media sites, Mm -hmm. uh, to share information. And then news this week that there is a group of Ukrainian Mandarin speakers who are trying to pierce the Chinese propaganda veil and reach Chinese people uh, with ideas about the, the war and with information about the war. Um, I'm just fascinated by what you might make of these types of efforts, whether you think that they work or have any influence in the situation and how you might kind of compare them to other phenomena. So I think that we have to look at this in the context of online citizen diplomacy overall. And Ukrainian online citizen diplomacy has undoubtedly changed global politics. Particularly in the first two weeks of the war where support from any country has been critical, Ukrainians mobilized online for campaigns, the effectiveness of which, even knowing the determination of my people, (laughs) frankly staggered me and continues to stagger me. Because that online pressure and also offline pressure, um, particularly in Europe, the the protests uh, made out of thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, um, the letter writing campaigns to politicians, right? All of that is part of this mass effort to earn Ukraine allies and for those allies to contribute materially to to Ukrainian efforts uh, against Russia. Most of them, yes, have been incredibly successful. 
um, unfortunately, except for Close the Sky, which Ukrainians know is big ask and has been now is now being made in conjunction with just asking for equipment, asking for airplanes, asking for tanks, asking for more equipment, because it just seems like there's no appetite to defend Ukrainian lives, um, even if it's from the sky. But um, as parts of those efforts, the outreach to countries that are not traditionally Ukrainian allies is incredibly important. Why is it important? I don't want to overstate how effective it is. That's not something that in this moment we can uh, quantitatively measure. Um, I would argue it's not something that we can really fully understand. Um, And I think it's really something that we won't ever fully understand, even when Ukraine wins the war. But the reason why it's important is because with many of the countries who are not allied with Ukraine, there's not a clear understanding of what's happening in Ukraine overall. And even if these efforts target a handful of people and convince a handful of people, and even if those people don't convince anybody else, they are afraid to talk to their neighbors about it because of censorship laws, They don't know how to push this information further. But even if a small handful of people is reached, then the logic is that there will be some spark, some ember of support for Ukraine. And the reason why that ember is needed is because Ukrainians plan on winning the war. And I think, you know, aside from my very hopeful Uh, rhetoric. Uh, We have seen Ukraine make a lot of gains on the ground as well. So so that is a a genuine reality. And when Ukraine wins the war, some of these countries may want to ally with Ukraine. They will only be able to ally with Ukraine if there is public appetite of some kind for that. It's also really difficult, particularly for Russia, um, to find fight on two fronts, right? Um, Russia has a long and storied history of getting into wars that uh, it doesn't win and then it sparks a <laughs> revolution at home. <laughs> Ukrainians understand this history, particularly with Russia. And so that attempt to seed a rebellion speaks to that history. I am talking to you on a morning where it feels as if what you are prophesizing to some extent is really possible. You know, we're, we're seeing apparently the Ukrainian army push back in the suburbs uh, around Kiev. We're seeing at least to some extent more tangible conversation about terms in uh, the peace talks that are going on right now in Istanbul. And all of that could change tomorrow. You know, it, it, it certainly could go the other way in an instant. Um, so I don't want to overstate it. But even to hear you talk about when uh, Ukraine wins the war or when uh, these hostilities cease, I hear you sort of exerting a kind of positivity uh, into it. And and I want to ask you a little bit about that because, you know, that's that's a piece of this, right? That's something that we're seeing happen, right? An effort to kind of 
seed not only or you know not only spread facts about what's happening inside that country but also to to spread a kind of uh positive energy if you will about the need to support and the need to get behind uh ukrainians what do you make of that and and how is that at all intention do you think with this kind of more clinically fact-driven uh, way that you've analyzed the information ecosystem in the past? Yeah, I mean, um, these myths, legends, um, and in many cases, real stories of bravery are crucial during a war. And they're not just crucial now. Um, if I can get a little bit nerdy, these are long Ukrainian traditions of supporting those who fight for Ukrainian freedom. Um, Because, of course, the fight for Ukrainian freedom has been going on for hundreds of years. And as a part of that, um, legend-making, myth-making, and also support for key historical figures is part of a long tradition. In the online information environment, that is at odds sometimes with the sheer, you know, only the facts, ma'am, kind of approach about the war. But I do think that it has a very important role to play. The important role is, first of all, keeping up the morale of Ukrainian people. Uh, I think we're all doing a great job at that ourselves, but, you know, we need some memes. We need some memes to share. We need um, we need to put Ghost of Kiev on a T-shirt, even if every Ukrainian knows that it's a myth, right? Every Ukrainian knows that Ghost of Kiev is not one dude who's sitting there in his airplane taking out Russians by the hundreds, right? What it really is, is it's, it's kind of like white propaganda, right? And I think it occupies this really interesting space, a space that kind of helps outline the character of Ukrainian people, even though it doesn't always contribute to the facts as we understand them on the ground. And outlining the character of the Ukrainian people is actually a kind of education, because before the war, Ukrainians were not presented in a good light in most culture. Right before this, we had that silly controversy with Emily in Paris, right, presenting a Ukrainian woman as a thief and a liar, right? And that is pretty standard with what understanding of Ukrainians was like before this. Now, understanding of Ukrainians is farmers who steal tractors, by the way, verified phenomenon, is grandmas who throw their jars of pickled tomatoes at a drone, There was a Ukrainian outlet who interviewed the grandma, um, who, although did not provide any photo or video evidence, recounted the story in great detail. And now understanding of Ukrainians is as a people who will do anything at any cost to defend the land that they live on. And I think that this sort of I don't know if you can even call it misinformation, although I guess it is misinformation, but the memes, the cultural approach to all of this, I think really feeds into understanding of what Ukrainians are like as a nation. Um, And also sometimes provide just pure relief, 
a small release valve from the genuinely disturbingly horrible things that we're seeing that no Ukrainian will ever forget. I hear everything you're saying. I, I find it fascinating and I, I'd love to dig into it more and talk to you more about this at some point because me, you, know, you have made a career of figuring out what's real and what isn't, but this value in sometimes what isn't necessarily true is something that, that I think we have to kind of contend with as well as we think about questions around disinformation and, and misinformation, how people internalize the interests of, of their fellow citizens or of the, of their nation state, mm-hmm. you know, that it's a really interesting dynamic that I don't think is well understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, I also, um, I want to say that we need to be careful with it. We really need to be careful with it because uh, Ukrainians are wielding this power of myth-making with good intentions. But if there's anything that we know about the internet, it's that everything will be perverted and turned upside down and misused. Um, And so I think that as we try to understand the pro-Ukrainian memes, the pro-Ukrainian storytelling, um, the mix of genuine and not genuine stories that Ukrainians tell themselves, tell each other, and also tell the world. I think we need to very clearly separate that from reporting. We need to very clearly separate that from fact. We need to very clearly separate that from our understanding of what's going on on the ground. I would argue for the most part, it's been pretty successful in doing that, but it's a blurry line. Absolutely. And of course, you know, the United States is a good example of a country whose myths about itself have not necessarily led to uh, a good place in the, uh, in the, in the long term. I suppose. Let me ask you a, a last question. You are in touch with a lot of people uh, in Ukraine. You still have, as I understand it, a family, close friends there. Um, what are you hearing from them about the experience they're having? Are they also beginning to feel some optimism at the moment? Um, or what is the kind of emotional mood of the people that you're speaking to in the country? Um, I pause now because it's difficult to describe what people in the country are feeling all at once. The best way I can put it is righteous rage. I don't want to extrapolate to all Ukrainians what I'm hearing from some Ukrainians, because I think one of the things that can get lost in these conversations about lionizing Ukrainians, about talking about how great we are, is our humanity, right? Is how difficult it is to pack a plastic bag and go to a country you've never been to and try to establish a new life or how to completely reorient your business so that it does nothing but serve the army or what it's like to wake up one day and go from being a student to being a warrior. I think that, you know, there's a lot of just human emotion in all of this um, human emotion that I think doesn't come through in 
memes, human emotion that doesn't come through in disinformation, but I think does come through in the stories that Ukrainians are telling, Ukrainians are telling, just, just purely telling on social media, like, here's what my family is doing, here's what it's like, and they're a bomb shelter. But at the same time, the one uniting understanding from everybody that I speak with is that Ukraine is ours and Ukraine will not fall. And it's difficult to describe it as optimism because it's not optimism. It's determination, right? And every news development is seen through that determination. Um, But not just news development. You have to understand that every Ukrainian is watching every blast, watching every tank, counting every soldier, right? That they can see. And so we in the West have the luxury of being removed physically from the war. We are not in a war zone. Ukrainians are. And we need to understand that when we ask about what the Ukrainian mood is, because The mood changes with every development, but the mood also stays the same, which is they will not take our country. Jane, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.